Colin Horton. I'm an award-winged surveyor, part-time property investor and self-confessed entrepreneur. I believe that business is all about getting to know the people that you're dealing with and that's exactly what we're going to be doing on this podcast. We'll be having in-depth chats, asking the personal questions and ultimately getting candid. Hi guys, welcome to today's episode of Candid and I feel very privileged because I have someone today that is joining me who is way above my pay grade in terms of (laughs) intellect and position and I listened to him on another podcast and it was one of the best podcasts I've listened to so I'm hoping it's going to be like that for all you guys. So without further ado, I would like to introduce you to Chris Door. Chris, would you be able to give a little uh, intro to everyone so we can uh, get the conversation started? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's great to join you. Um, yeah, so Chris Dor, I'm now KC, King's Council. Um, I'm a barrister. And interestingly, I've been a barrister for 30 years. The first 20 years, I was a junior barrister. For the last 10 years, I've been what well, was a QC until until the Queen passed away, now Casey. So basically, my day job is defending sort of celebrities and um, sort of high-profile people, but also lots of other people, to be honest, uh, in, in serious criminal cases. That's what I do sort of as a day job um, in the courts. Um, but I also do – I've got a book out called Justice on Trial – which is all about what's wrong with the system that I work in and how we can make it better. Um, I've done, I made a documentary for the BBC a couple of years ago, again, about the same issue, about all the mistakes we're making with criminal justice and, and how we could do things differently. Um, I do a lot of writing. I'm involved in TV development at the moment in terms of TV drama. So basically, I, I grew up in Milton Keynes, went to a very ordinary school, and by a series of kind of uh, lucky kind of breaks, I guess, and maybe a little bit of uh, kind of hard work along the way, um, somehow they've let me be one of the top lawyers in the country, write books and make TV shows. So um, whether I'm doing something right or wrong, um, I, I do also I spend a lot of my time wherever I can doing mentoring. I've got a couple of couple of mentoring appointments later on today uh, where I help young people from sort of underprivileged backgrounds who are interested in becoming lawyers and give them a bit of coaching on how they can kind of um, compete against kids who perhaps come from wealthier, more privileged backgrounds. So that's something that's really close to my heart. So I spread myself quite thin, but um, but I enjoy everything I do or I wouldn't do it. Chris, mate, honestly, that was such a humble uh, introduction for if anyone knows anything about law to be a KC is, well, I keep saying QC, God bless her. So KC, it's, um, it's an incredible achievement. And there's so many questions like I want to ask. And it's like all my childhood dreams of like watching TV shows. And I get you get, you, you must get this all the time where is it really like this? You know, what's it like defending people? Um, but we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, I wanted just to start kind of with your upbringing because you aren't necessarily the archetypal, um, you know, barrister, lawyer, QC. So, what should, so forgive me if I use the wrong term. So you start off as you start off as a lawyer, and then work your way up to. No, you 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 start off as a as a either a barrister or a solicitor, um, and you choose which route to take. So, um, the reason I became a barrister actually is a, is, is a you know really quite amusing story is that I I went to a really rubbish comprehensive school, um, left school at sixteen, and and uh, my mum and dad moved house well. After I left school, and I'd, I'd, I'd actually gone off to try and make my fortune selling donuts on the beaches in the south of France, uh, <laughs> I up down with a mate of mine, and um, unsurprisingly, it wasn't a great business success. So I ended up coming back to find my mum and dad had moved uh, by two hundred miles away, um, and they basically said to me, "If you if you want to come back and live with us, you can." I was only sixteen, um, but you've got to either get a job or go to college. So I went to sort of check out there weren't many jobs around for 16 year olds back in in those days in the 80s it was pretty big unemployment and um, so I went to the local sixth form college and um thankfully they took me I think it was the day before the term started I got I got offered a place as a sort of someone dropped out um and it was an amazing kind of stroke of luck because it was a great sixth form college really good teachers I really got into education really for the first time and about halfway through my time at sixth form, I went to the career centre. No idea what to do for a job. Really didn't ha- hadn't really didn't have a clue. Um, and and even in those days, they had computers, and you could do like a questionnaire on a computer as to what you like, what you don't like, and that kind of thing. And I filled all these answered all these questions. And the printout used to come out of the printer, and it basically said you've got two jobs that you can do. One is actor, and the other one is barrister. And that was it. <laughs> <laughs> 
So I didn't really know much. Obviously, I knew what actors did, um, but I, I don't think I would have been very good at that. So, um, so I went and investigated. I went and watched cases in the court and watched. So, you know, coming back to your point earlier about is it like on TV? Well, not not really. It's actually even more dramatic and more interesting when you see real cases um, compared to what you see on TV because real people have got their lives on the line, you know, every day. You know, they could go to prison for 20 years or they could go home. You know, that's the kind of kind of like extreme drama, if you like, of a criminal trial. And I, and I went along and watched during the summer holidays, during my A-levels, and I just was utterly hooked. I thought, this is just so cool. This is like, this is a real job you can actually do. And I <laughs> really kind of, as I say, I, I, I come, my dad was in the building trade and my mum worked as a care assistant. So, you know, I didn't have any kind of like role models around like, like the profession. My mum and dad were incredibly influences on me, really hardworking people. Um, but but they hadn't been to you know they had left school at fifteen and kind of you know gone into uh, sort of sort of manual jobs if you like and shop shop work um, so I didn't have those role models so it literally was the computer that led me on the path that I ended up uh, taking and the one that I'm still on now. Mate, it's it's so weird those little like sliding doors moments, isn't it? That one little yeah. like little computer printout. I mean, do you find obviously where it comes out? I find it interesting how acting and um, you know, legal route came out in the same kind of printer. Um, do you find like when I, whenever I've been to trial, so I do expert witness stuff for my end, uh, valuation stuff, nowhere near as exciting, very, <laughs> very tedious at points. Um, but it does kind of feel like you are performing to a degree in front of the yeah. judges, in front of the, of, you know, everyone else. Do you take, uh, is there an element of performing when you're, you know, doing what you're doing when you're representing clients? Or like it, it just fascinates me. Everything about it literally fascinates me. I'm a bit in awe, really. But if you can, like, well, it's very interesting that you you are. I mean, it, there's a reason why those two jobs came up on the printout because you know people. You know, you're, you're absolutely right that when we're in court, we're on show. There's an element of performance, of course, there is because ultimately our job is to give our clients the best possible chance to win the case. And we don't do that if we don't impress people, if we don't kind of persuade and take the, you know, you, you want to call them the audience, but it's a jury and they've got a very important job to do. But the truth of it is, unless we can persuade them over to our side of the case, we're going to lose. And so you have to do what you can to get the message across in a way that appeals to the jury, which, you know, if you're dealing with a judge, you have to, it's a very different job, but it's the same principle that you've got to persuade your the audience and the decision maker. Uh, and so I think there are, there's a big part of what I do is performance, undoubtedly. Um, and you've got to link that in to the ability to analyze evidence and to decide what a good and a bad point is. But, but in the end, I think my job is as much about psychology. It's about sort of what, what, what's going to make people believe something? How, you know, how are you going to, um, how are you going to win hearts and minds on the jury? And a lot of that is just, just understanding, you know, sometimes, to give you an example, it's it's always a good idea if you can. If, if your client, you know, is accused of a crime and they may have done something wrong, but not necessarily the thing they're charged with, then just be very open and say, I accept I did this wrong. I accept I shouldn't have said that. And I accept that maybe I told a lie about this. But you know, that doesn't mean I'm guilty of this crime. And so there's a very much a kind of a, a, a degree to which you're looking at, you know, honesty, as much honesty and openness and transparency as you can bring to the table is is the thing that most impresses juries, I think. And, my, and so if you can p- present a case that's honest, even if it means admitting some things that are maybe not not that great that your client's done, um, then that, that usually is a good idea. Um, but there's a lot of strategy involved. There is a lot of performance. There's clearly a lot of, sort of legal knowledge that you have to have to understand what's allowed, what's not allowed. Um, but if, if you were to ask me what's the one thing that tends to be the, the, the driving force in winning a case, I would say it's the ability to understand human psychology and to translate that into the way that you present the case. So, so that being able to persuade, being able to take people on the journey with you and make them sort of want to support your side of it because of the way you present it. Um, I think is really important. Um, but yeah, were you were you taught that? So obviously the psychology aspect is that something you learn independently, or is that something you were taught throughout your training? Because sounds bang on. I mean, you do you take those skills that you have in the courtroom into your own? Sorry, there's a few questions here all at once, so forgive me. But do you take it into your day to day life with 
certain other things, you know, because the psychology of trying to convince people to do stuff is probably one of the most important skill sets you can have in any social situation to kind of, you know, I hate to use yeah. word manipulate, but manipulate situations to suit your demands, well, well, requirements. Some of those points. So you asked me whether you're taught about it. The answer is no. I don't think anyone ever in the course of my many years of training to be a barrister or whether it was at university or at law school and then later on when I was sort of training in chambers um, alongside other barristers, I don't remember anyone saying to me that most of this is about psychology. It's just not, not, it's not something that's taught to lawyers or even to trial lawyers or advocates like me. It's just, I think, I, everything I've ever done has, you know, my journey through education and leaving school and everything else, it, it was a learning journey about what makes people tick, including myself. You know, what, what, what makes us do what we do? What are our motivations? What do we respond to positively? What do we respond to kind of negatively? Those are the sorts of things that I guess I'm probably a bit over-analytical about, or at least very analytical about, and in my personal life or in my professional life, in all situations. So I think the psychology, um, the, the way in which I look at legal problems as a psychological problem to be kind of solved and then to be presented to someone else um, to try and persuade them, I think that's something that I've kind of picked up over the years and become more and more kind of clear about as experience has, has taught me how to win, you know, and, and, and what does win cases. Um, and, and talking about translating that kind of behavioural pattern or that skill set into my personal life, do you know what? It's actually quite dangerous because the ability to kind of present and persuade can, can be something you can use for good, obviously, and, and it's very useful and very important in my professional life. But at the same time, it means that you're quite good at persuading people, you know, in all situations, because that's the skill that you kind of develop and it's hardwired into you every day. And, you know, when you're dealing with your own children or your partner or whoever, something you like, you know, I have been, you know, accused of barristering people, you know, in my personal life. You know, that's that's one of the things that we, I think, barristers are all guilty of is that we go home and we do sort of, we say, okay, well, let's analyse this. You know, you're saying we're going to have roast chicken. Well, let's look at all the different, you know, frozen and <laughs> you know, And you kind of end up analysing stuff in, in day-to-day life in a way that, I guess most people don't. Um, um, and, and sometimes that can be helpful and sometimes it can be very irritating to people that you're speaking to. Yeah, I didn't really think about it like that. Yeah, it's a bloody good point, actually. <laughs> it's a really good point. I mean, do you have it with, like, obviously, when you've got your, I'm guessing because you're such a high calibre of KC now, you're, you're only going to be going up against a handful of other KCs, am I right? And do you yeah, have... Mostly, yeah. Is it a case of like when they when they you know the trial's finished because it is such a small knit of people we you know is it the type of thing where you know you're going to have a beer afterwards yeah. is it that kind of is it that kind of so like everything's put away that trial's done and you literally just go back to being peers yeah I th- I, I, it is I mean you, you you know I appear because my client base is on the whole, uh, either quite high profile or quite wealthy I don't necessarily always appear in the most serious cases. Um, because I might have a client who's very high profile and wealthy who's charged with something that's not so serious. So not always do those cases um, I up against another KC or another very top-end performer, but, but most of the time I am. Um, and, and to sort of answer your more fundamental question, then uh, it's, it's absolutely part of the day-to-day life of barristers to be friends outside the courtroom and, you know, really do battle in the courtroom, but come away from it and exactly as you say, go for a pint, go for a Chinese you know, we, we even have dinners, you know, when we've done a long trial, maybe there'll be lots of barristers involved, many defendants and so on. We'll often take the judge out for dinner, you know, so so that the prosecution, the defence, the judge, everyone will go out for a meal. And, you know, the idea is that you don't talk about the case. It's supposed to be a way of kind of just decompressing after a two, three, four month trial and, and maintaining that kind of sense of camaraderie and friendship. Because, the, you know, the truth of it is that we're not enemies. We, 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 we're professionals on different sides of the case. You know, but, but a week later, it might be that the person who's prosecuting in one case is defending in the next mm. and vice versa. So, so you're not, you don't have that sort of entrenched position of just always being on one side or the other either. I mean, many do, and I'm, I mostly defend. But, um, but, you know, people often uh, act on both sides. So, you know, it's not unusual for barristers doing a case to share a room in their chambers and then go across the road to court and they're against each other in a trial. Wow. And then they come back and they sit in their room and, you know, chat away and have a, have a, have a cup of tea. So, Have you ever had any, like, really, or you don't go into case specifics, but really heated 
like really heated battles in the courtroom that have gone maybe oh, oh, when you've got under there when you've got you know you've got under someone's skin and you've got on you know you have you had situations like that that have come yeah. up I have. I mean, I try, I try not to. I mean, when I was started out, I was probably a bit more aggressive, like most people are in most <laughs> life. You know, as a sort of twenty-five-year-old, you know, I was a lot more kind of, kind of maybe a little bit more aggressive, a lot more kind of focused on, you know, trying to on conflict and kind of like engaging with that. But as experience, uh, you know, as I've increased my kind of experience over the years, I kind of realised that you know, that's not always the best way. So sometimes if you can avoid conflict, that's helpful. Um, but sometimes it's unavoidable. I mean, I've had cases where I've had to have stand-up rows with the judge, you know, not never mind the other side. You know, if the judge is acting unfairly and constantly interrupting and constantly kind of trying to essentially guide the case towards the prosecution and away from my side of the case, sometimes you've got to stand up and say to the judge, you know, if you carry on like this, this is deeply unfair. Because you're looking to influence the jury in front of, you know, it, 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 you know, in front of the court, and you're trying to, you know, and so sometimes you know judges don't like that at all for obvious reasons because, you know, they like to wield the authority of being the judge and being in charge. Um, but but there are times when it's necessary as part of our job as as particularly as defence lawyers to stand up to whether it's the judge or the prosecution and just say enough's enough, this is wrong and. You know, you have to be prepared to, to to get engaged in that confrontation. I think, on the whole, my view would be that the calmer you can can remain, the better for the overall outcome. Because if you're if you appear to be sort of stressed or under pressure, that can look like you're on the defensive. So maintaining, I mean, we call it, you know, as of course they do in other walks of life, you know, having a good poker face. You know, if a witness comes out with something that's really bad for your case <laughs> and you're in the middle of cross-examination, the last thing you go is, oh, damn, no, I can't believe it. You know, you've just got to maintain. You, I mean, what I usually do in a situation where a witness comes out with something in the middle of my questions, which is really unhelpful, is I actually say to them, that's really helpful. Let me make a careful note so that it kind of looks as if, I actually don't care. <laughs> I'm thinking this is this is the disaster. So so there's a degree of kind of pretense about it, I suppose. But um, but the truth of it is that we, uh, we, we we're not all friends. There are cases which are really kind of pressurised. There are places cases where the prosecutor feels you know under unnecessary excessive pressure from the defence. There are cases where the defence feel that the prosecutor is being unfair and trying to pull fast ones, and that could lead to kind of a degree of irritation and, and sometimes stand up rows between between barristers. Wow, much something that I'd get involved in, but I've certainly seen it over the years that barristers go full on at each other in the robing room. I don't mean physically, but um, you know they'll actually. Have, be have you had have you had like a rival? Is there, is there someone that like, you know what, I really bloody hate that. <laughs> I've got no, a bit, and, you see, and you see it come up, you're like, oh, God, no, not him or not her. Like, cause I have that in my, in my world. I've got, I've got a bit Yeah, I, I know what like, you mean. I think the answer to that is is it's very interesting because the people who, who are the most irritating are often not the best at what they do. And so, it, you know, and the people that are the most friendly and calm and reasonable are the best at what they do. So that so the big question is who would you rather be against? Do you want to be against someone who's noisy, arrogant, loud, you know, confrontational, who genuinely generally loses? Or do you want to be against somebody who's, as I say, is really on the ball, but really professional and completely calm and fair at all times? Because those sorts of people tend to win most. So you know, if I've got a choice, I'd probably over in the interest of kind of making it more likely that I'll win the case. I'd rather have someone who's a bit crazy and, and who, who behaved really badly, particularly in front of the jury, because someone like that is more likely to mess up the case and and uh, and, and let yeah. me win than someone who presents it completely fairly and and is you know respectful at all times. So so. It, yeah, I mean, and, and I suppose there's an element of when someone is annoying and maybe a bit aggressive and loud and that kind of thing. I mean, to me, after 30 years, it's it kind of water off a duck's back, and I I I, I don't take it personally. If if anything, if I prosecutor starts going a bit nuts in court, and, and and I'll just turn around to the jury and go like this, you know, just shrug my shoulders and go, well, what, you know, just <laughs> get on with it, because they'll dig a hole for themselves. Um, but the best people, whether they're judges or prosecutors, who, who you know, who I'd be against, the best ones are the ones who are not like that, the ones who are 
completely down the middle fair because if a jury sees the prosecutor and the judge being really fair, then um, they tend to focus more on the defendant and what he or she may have done. But if they see the prosecutor being unfair or the judge being unfair, then they focus on that. So, um, and that sometimes is good for the defence because it, it's not always helpful when they focus on the evidence against the defendant. Are you, so I guess, this, I mean, there's a couple of questions that are just like screaming out to me that I really want to ask. First one is obviously your defence, you, you tend to do more defence than prosecution. Have you turned down cases before? You can't turn down. We have a professional rule called the cab rank rule, which, as the name suggests, rather like cab drivers, you have to, when you get to the front... Oh, really? The, I did not know that. Person. Yeah, so that applies that. to barristers. Uh, and, and so we can't turn down cases because we don't like the look of the client or we think they're guilty or we think, you know, or some, for some other reason. So, so, so that's a very sort of clear and long-standing rule. And I think it's a very good rule, actually, because it means that you make sure that... You haven't got barristers picking and choosing who they like mm. the look of or, and so on. But, but of course, you t- I turn down cases if I can't do them, you know, for example, because I've, I've already got another case on the same day or yeah. because, or because they can't afford the fees, you know, that you, you're still entitled to charge the fees. You got, you don't have to take a case for free just because, yeah. um, <laughs> you know, any more than a cab driver has to agree to take someone home for free just because they're at the front of the queue. So, so provided that the person can pay my fees and provided that I've got, um, a gap in my diary, then the answer is I'm not allowed to turn them down. And, and, and I've never turned the case down on the basis of what the case looks like because wow. partly because we're not allowed and it's against the rules. And secondly, because I believe that that rule's mm. there for a good reason. And that's because it's not for me. It's not for the lawyer to decide who gets a defense or what kind of defense they get. It's, it, it's, it's, you know, the, it, our job is to defend whoever comes to us. And without fear, favour or prejudice or personal kind of uh, moral views, for example, about what they've done or may have done, if, if lawyers were allowed to kind of use their personal morals to influence whether they did a case or not, I think that would be a really bad system. But honestly, it's so interesting. The amount of times I've sat at home and you obviously you see cases that have really high profiles when horrific things have happened. And then you're like, how can they get a lawyer? Like, who, who, how can anyone sit there and, and defend them? Um, obviously don't go into any specifics or but what's it like when hypothetically saying you know they've done that cat you know will you will you ask them to tell you if they've done the crime or well, would you, you kind you of avoid are. that you question oh, you do know so if you if, it, if you've had one that you know is you know terrible how how is that because that must be hard or you're able to switch off and just get into professional think, mode I don't think it's hard and I, I think most people probably now that I've explained the cab rank rule it's probably a bit easier mm. to kind of understand yeah. that we're not sitting there weighing up whether to do a case because we like it or don't like it because we can't do that once we've got the case once we're instructed as a barrister then of course we want to know whether the client's pleading guilty or not guilty and, and many, many people who are accused of crime plead guilty. So they come along and say, yes, I have committed that crime. And so our job is not to, quote, unquote, get them off. Our job is for them to plead guilty and try and mitigate the sentence and get a lighter sentence. And that, you know, I think most people, when they're analysing it, don't really think about that side of mm. it, which is that we often represent people who are not only guilty, but, but accept they're guilty and will plead guilty. So that happens a lot. Um, then you have another kind of case, I suppose, where people plead not guilty and there's very little evidence against them. And you can sort of see why they're pleading not guilty. And then probably the great majority of cases that I deal with and that most criminal barristers deal with, defence barristers, are cases where the, the defendant says he or she is not guilty, but the evidence is quite strong. And there's lots of difficulties in, you know, why were you there then? Why did you have that big bag of cash covered in cocaine if you weren't involved in cocaine dealing? And, you know, why why yeah. was four kilos of heroin found under your floorboards if you're not a drug dealer? You know, things like that. So, so you'll often, and they'll say, well, you know, they'll come up with an explanation, which which we may listen to and think, you know what, that's not particularly credible. I'm not sure anyone's going to believe it. But, but, and we'll say that, you know, I'll say to a client, if, you know, if, if they've been arrested with a bag full of money covered in drugs, and they say, well, I didn't know it was anything to do with drugs. Then you've got to, you ask them, say, you know, well, where did it come from? You ask them lots of detail. But in the end, if they say that's what happened and I didn't know, it's not my job to overrule that and make them plead guilty if they say they're not. It's, it's my job to say, okay, 
those, you know, I've, I've kind of pointed out the difficulties. I've told you why your defense may have some problems. What, you know, your fingerprints on a window of a house at Greenberg, for example, or whatever. You know, there's going to have to be an explanation or we're going to have some problems. But once you've explained that, it's your job then to go into court and present their case as best you can. And the prosecution are going to try and push all the right buttons to get the client convicted and get them found guilty and get them sentenced. And that, I think, doesn't present me with a challenge. You know, it would do if I was responsible for deciding the verdict, because, of course, it would be a different issue then. If I was, for example, responsible for whether a, a, an alleged child molester was put back on the streets... But I'm not. That's not my job. My job is to just represent my client. Somebody else's job, usually a jury, is there to decide whether they committed the crime or not, based on all the evidence and based on hearing from both sides and applying the law. And and in the end, if I were to undermine the client's defense or try and kind of like just basically not really buy into it, and and, and, uh, then that would be a real, the system wouldn't work if lawyers did that. Because because who who represents the the interests of a defendant if their own lawyer isn't? You know, so so I don't have a problem with it. And, and in fact, when people say to me, you know, how can you represent people when you believe that they're guilty? The answer is because that's my job. <laughs> it's my job to do that. It's not my job to judge whether they're guilty or not. It's my job to represent whether they are guilty or they're not guilty. Um, and it's someone else's job to judge them. And, and, and that's what happens in the end. And, you know, and, I mean, you've got to remember that the criminal sort of process is, is accepts that a significant number of guilty people will be found not guilty because if, th- if that wasn't the case, then a large number of innocent people will be found guilty. If you lowered the standard of proof, and at the moment, as you probably know, you've got to prove a criminal case beyond reasonable doubt. Well, if you made that just more probable than not or probably guilty, then, of course, lots more people will be found guilty. But lots more innocent people will be found guilty as well. We have a system which accepts that setting a really high bar for someone to be found guilty of a crime means that people who are guilty will be found not guilty. Not because they're innocent, but because there's not enough evidence to prove that they did it. And that, for me, is a system I think that's really, it works really well. But I think it only, people only accept it if you accept that part of that system is guilty people go back on the streets. I have to say, in my experience, when they do, mostly it's not for long. They tend to get arrested <laughs> pretty quick. But, but that's, that's the reality of the mm-hmm. system. If you, were, if you were locking people up for being probably guilty, then you know, the prisons would be full of innocent people, and I don't think anyone would like a system like that. I'm, I completely agree. Actually, when you articulate it like that, it makes perfect sense. I mean, is there... My power's on you, that's why. Yeah, no, I'm getting embarrassed. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> is there um you might you might not think there are any um but if you could identify kind of one major flaw you think in in the current system is there a system that you do think is flawed in the current criminal justice system at the moment that you that you, you oh okay fine i wasn't expecting you to be so open with that but okay fine yeah the well, whole not read my book. it says on the front <laughs> Um, yeah, no, we'll put a little plug for the book as well, man. I will have a read of it though, actually. Now, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, yeah. so, so the book's called Justice on Trial, and and the point of the title is that I'm basically put the whole system on trial, and I'm looking at what's wrong with it, and the, and the subtitle is how the system is broken and how we can fix it. And my my kind of analysis of what's broken falls into three major categories, which is one that we use prison way too much. We send way too many people to prison in this country, for example, compared to the whole of the rest of Europe. We're way up there in terms of the number of people in prison. We've got over 80,000. It used to be 40,000 when I started, so it's doubled in in, in, in just the last 30 years. So that's number one. We massively over overuse prison. And that prison justice is very much a kind of university of crime. You know, when you send particularly very young people to, to custody and to young offenders institutions and prisons, most of them end up being involved in crime for most of their sort of life, certainly into their middle and, and later sort of old age. Um, so that's a big mistake. The second catastrophic mistake we make is the, is the prohibition of drugs. Uh, you know, we've been, we've had this high level of prohibition for the last 50 years and we, it's led to an explosion of drug use, particularly heroin use, uh, crack use in the eighties and all the drug related crime, gang violence, the young people getting murdered, everything kind of eventually when you track it back, tracks back to the Misuse of Drugs Act in the early seventies. So that's another catastrophic mistake that we've made, which leads to 
probably 50% of the crime in our country, particularly the violent crime, comes from drug prohibition. And then the third area that I look at in the book is, is the way that we still criminalise children as young as 10, and we put them in courts and we charge them with crimes. You know, 10-year-old kids. Now, I don't know if you have like either your own kids or other people's kids, you know, like 10-year-olds are not mature enough to understand very much. Uh, and, and yes, they can understand right from wrong in that sort of general sense. But the idea that you criminalise sort of children of 10, 11, 12, 13, those sorts of ages, when they're still developing, they're still young, that is a big mistake because the children that we criminalise in that way, they become lifelong criminals, almost all of them, uh, and often causing great harm to others. So if we were to if we were to stop doing those three things, if we were to stop criminalising children altogether and, and treat child offending in inverted commas as a welfare issue in a way and you need to work on them from an educational point of view and so on we would see a much smaller number of young people re-offending going back into the system if we were to legalize and license drug supply huge bonanza in terms of cash for the country huge number of um, victims of crime that wouldn't be victims anymore you know the people who get burgled for heroin the people who get robbed for heroin the people who get their car stolen all of these kind of kind of crimes that are committed day after day and, and the impact on drug users in terms of sex work and other forms of exploitation that they have to go through to pay for drugs all of that goes in a licensed and legalized system and, and so crime comes down you know considerably and with prison it's just so obvious to anyone who's ever looked at the issue that the more you use prison and the longer you lock people up for, the more crimes they go on to commit and the more crime you get in a society. And the US, and I talk about the US quite a lot in the books, I spend a lot of time researching US prisons and, and traveling around the States. And um, the US has two and a half million people in prison, you know, and, and what, you know, that's the toughest system on earth, the largest number of prisons any country's got. And does anyone think the streets of Chicago are safe as a result? You know, of course not. They have one of the highest murder rates in the world. So, so anyone who looks at prison would say it's just killing the patients. The worst thing we can do is imprison so many people. And every time there's an election, the politicians come along and they say, we want to lock people up for longer. We will increase sentences. Every time they do that makes the problem worse. The well, so many questions on this. So point two regarding the um, prohibition of drugs, radical. I'm here for it. I, I do agree. Um, not that I'm a drug user because we we'll get that out of here, but um, in terms of just it's, it's radical. Um, how I'm guessing, obviously, when you've said this in public before and then when the book came out and stuff, what was people's reaction? Because obviously there's going to be an in infrastructure. How would you see that working? Um, well, obviously certain, certain drugs are, you know, quite bad. But um, yeah, how would you how would that work in 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 a? Um, well, it's interesting that you automatically say that some drugs are quite bad. Um, to me, drugs are a substance, so substances can't be bad. They can be unhealthy in the sen- in the same sense that eating seven Mars bars a day is unhealthy and bad for you. It doesn't mean sugar is bad. It just means that there are certain ways in which you consume it, which are going to be really bad for your health. And the Good same point. is true of drugs. If you, if you, for example, like in in Switzerland, they have a system of licensed drug supply through licensed heroin-assisted uh, treatment programs, where where heroin users go twice a day. They get clean pharmaceutical heroin. They get um, hygienic conditions to take the heroin in. They get medical staff on hand if they need medical support or help in any way. And most of those heroin users live a perfectly normal life. Just as, in fact, most users of alcohol live a fairly normal life, mm. and just some don't. You know, some are seriously affected by it, and, and it can cause them to commit crime and violence and all sorts of other things. How um, easy would it be to to, to implement that? I mean, is this something that's actually ever going to be possible? Because well, oh, well, you're, you're speaking sense, so it makes perfect sense to me. It's possible. It's it's being done in one way or another somewhere on Earth today. Um, there are licensed and legalised drug supply, uh, you know, uh, policies in place in a number of countries. Switzerland's been at the vanguard of heroin treatment, um, and and it's very interesting. Switzerland as an example because Switzerland is not necessarily a country you immediately think of as being sort of radical, kind of left wing place, and it's not. 
Um, having travelled there and, and visited all of these drug uh, pr- programmes um, as part of the book research, um, Switzerland's absolutely a very conservative, kind of old-fashioned kind of place, very wealthy country, as, as, as I'm sure you know. And, and so why would a country like that have such a progressive approach to heroin? And, and the answer was a simple one. In the 80s in Switzerland, they had a massive explosion in heroin use, and in particular public heroin use and public injection and that's the same time that the that, that HIV and AIDS was was you know spreading throughout the drug using population of of Europe and, and and all over the world. And so, what, what the Swiss people were seeing were, was large numbers of drug users injecting heroin in railway stations, in parks, and in playgrounds, and many of them contracting HIV, and many of them then going on to develop AIDS at the time because there was no treatment available. And the Swiss public basically said, we don't want this. We don't want this on the streets. We don't want our children to go to a park and tread on an infected needle or indeed go to a park and see someone passed out, you know, in the corner with a needle hanging out of their arm. We don't want this. So how can we not have this anymore? And the answer was pretty obvious when you think about it, rather than all of these people having to, you know, commit crimes, sell them their bodies and do all sorts of other things to get drugs that they then have nowhere to live and they basically just take them in public. What we do is just, just give them the heroin for free and, and we'll give them safe pharmaceutical heroin, we'll give them access to doctors. And so they started on an experimental basis with a small project, I think it was in Geneva, the first one, uh, or possibly Zurich, and then they, they basically spread all over the country in small steps and now they have them everywhere um, and they have almost no problem with heroin from a criminal point of view. There are still heroin users, but though, as I said earlier, those heroin users, and I met them and went to, to see the operation of one of these um, heroin-assisted programs where the heroin is all kept in a fridge and it's all pharmaceutical stuff in proper jars and measured precisely by a nurse or a doctor before the uh, the user takes takes the dose. Um, you just think about all of those different things. You know, you've got definitely got clean needles. You're definitely not going to overdose because the amount you're being given is the exact precise amount based on, you know, the same as you would get of any drug at a hospital or, or, or a doctor. You know, you know exactly what you're getting. There's no impurities. There's no mixing of absolute sort of deadly rubbish that often goes into street drugs. Um, and it's free. So you don't have to go out and commit a crime to get it. When you put all of those things together, what you end up with now, what's the argument against that? Well, some people morally argue drugs are wrong, so you shouldn't do it. I don't understand that. Is it if it's right for people to be in a park, you know, with with an infected needle catching AIDS and children running around? That's morally right somehow, but but it's not. It's morally wrong to stop that happening by by licensing and legalizing. But I, I don't get that. But some people argue that as a, as a moral case, and others say, well, it's very expensive, isn't it? And the answer is no. It's cheap as chips compared to the cost of picking up the pieces from heroin crime. Drug dealers, murders, prison, all the other stuff that goes with it. And that's without all the crimes committed by users and without all the health and impacts on those users. So in the end, you have a country, Switzerland, which is not a radical country. It's not a country that's kind of left wing and looking for sort of radical solutions. A country which just looked at a problem and said, what would solve the problem? And they found the answer. And, and the answer was legalise and licensed heroin supply through clinics and through heroin-assisted programmes. But also they, all, they, have, um, um, they have consumption rooms, which mean that you know, there are those who don't want to take drugs in that way that are you know, on the margins of society, and they're still given a safe place to go and take drugs and have access to health care and all the things that you, know, you would hope that a civilised society would, um, w- would want to happen to someone who's suffering a drug addiction. And so in the end, I think um, it is, that's working very well in, in, in Switzerland. But for me, there are other programs around the world that experiment with decriminalization of different drugs. As you know, most half of America or more now has decriminalized or legalized cannabis, for example. Um, but, but in the end, when you analyze the Swiss model and you look at all of the moving parts in the drug supply network and the criminal justice system, it's just in the end common sense that the, the problem with drugs is not drugs. The problem is the law criminalizing drugs, just as the problem with alcohol back in the 1920s when it was pre, uh, under prohibition in the US, the problem wasn't alcohol, the problem was organized crime because you criminalized alcohol. And, and by criminalizing drugs in the way that we do, we've just created this massive criminal network and infrastructure all over the world, which leads to 
thousands and thousands of murders a year, tens of thousands of murders a year, in fact, and, of course, hundreds of thousands of deaths from, you know, taking drugs that are either too too strong or adulterated or from unclean um, and unhygienic uh, needles and other conditions. All of those things are wrong. Drugs themselves aren't necessarily wrong. For me, it's a question of personal choice. If people want to smoke cannabis or take cocaine or or use heroin, I think they should have as much right to do that. But what we shouldn't do as a society is create a supply network that relies on organised crime because we just handed over billions and billions of pounds a year to criminals, which which could actually be within the health system and being used for good instead. Mate, it makes perfect logical sense. I just wish our MPs had the same logical sense that you just displayed there, my well, friend. <laughs> very interesting point because you asked me, didn't you, about you know what was the sort of reaction to some of this when the book came out, and the and the answer was surprisingly that the reaction from those places that you might expect to be negative was actually positive. So we couldn't, when I was filming a show for the BBC a couple of years ago, we were looking for a a police officer to come and argue against me on a lot of these points. There was a very senior police officer to come and say, oh, I know this is all wrong. But we couldn't find one because the senior police officers that we we spoke to or that the producers spoke to were all saying, do you know what, we kind of agree with him. I mean, he's right that, you know, as police officers, we have to do our duty, which is try and lock up drug dealers and, 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 and everything else. But it's not doing any good. It's not changing society for the better. It's not reducing the overall level of crime. So actually, you know, when you, when you look at the sort of common sense and, and, and the most important thing I think that's lacking from the criminal justice system is basing policy on evidence of what works. Because at the moment, people base their votes, their decision and their reactions on what they emotionally think should happen. So people react, most people who are not heroin users, um, I mean, many people are drug users, one kind or another, as, as I'm sure you know, but most people are not heroin users. So they tend to have very little, you know, they view heroin use as being a very bad thing. And I, I actually got challenged. Uh, I made a speech about these things um, a couple of months back. And someone stood up with a glass of wine, quite drunk and a bit shaky, saying, well, heroin's not the same as what I drink. This Bordeaux is lovely, you know, and it's going to knock him and almost fell over. And I was thinking, well, you know, that that mindset that you know that alcohol is something even though it's a deadly drug and can can cause so much misery and so much um, uh, so many health problems and does uh, is is okay just because it's legal but all the others are not it just doesn't add up to me but the reaction that most people have is heroin's bad cocaine these you know these are class A drugs they're really bad things you know and and so when it comes to election time a, a politician standing up and saying we're advocating Chris Dawes manifesto if you like um, <laughs> I'm not so sure that they would take many people with them because I just think most people are quite comfortable with the idea that criminals should be locked up for as long as possible, that, it, that children who commit crimes are just as bad as adults who commit crimes, and drugs are wrong. So, And that's why policy is the way it is, because most people kind of broadly just accept those three things, even though, from my point of view, they're completely wrong to do so. Yeah, no, I mean, I'd vote for you, mate, if you run for him, if you run for prime minister, you get a vote for me, mate. Yeah, well, Fortunately. Um, <laughs> oh, <laughs> um, just one more bit on your manifesto, uh, just quickly, because yeah. it's a point uh, I wanted to get your opinion on. In, in terms of uh, children and the criminalisation of children, um, there's only one case that really stands out uh, with the, the criminalisation of children. You probably know the one I'm going to bring up, but with the Jamie Bulger case, just the case that horrified the nation, um, still does. I mean, it's, even just the thought of it is traumatising. Um they were young kids, you know, they, you know, barely hit puberty. I don't even know if they hit puberty at that age. Um, It's how, how would you have dealt with that situation as part of your kind of manifesto? Well, I think that's absolutely one of the best examples of how to do it wrong. And in the end, the, you know, we put these two 10 year old children in, in, in the crown court with all the wigs and the gowns and the whole, kind of all of that stuff. And you just imagine, I mean, what a 10-year-old's looking around, you know, we, you know, and, and we then put them into young offenders institutions. We then they were in prison, but, you know, they were in prison up into adulthood uh, before they eventually got released on parole. Um, one of them has been back in and out, as you probably know. Um, you know, he's had parole and then he's come out again and got 
arrested for other stuff and then got sent back to prison. The other one, as far as we know, I think has not uh, has not reoffended. Um, but the but the truth of it is that 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 case shows you everything that's wrong because the the reason why they were prosecuted was firstly because we've had this ludicrously young age of 10 set as the age of criminal responsibility for many, many years. Uh, although it used to be no minimum age, it used to hang eight-year-olds in the in the 19th century. But um, um, but so 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 the fact that we set, set the threshold. I mean, even Saudi Arabia, the age is 14 before you can be um, convicted of a crime. So you know, 10 is ridiculously young. And and in um, Luxembourg, it's 18. So it's the same age that you get to vote. Is the age that you become liable to be convicted of a crime. That seems fair and reasonable to me. If you if you're not mature enough to vote on the law, then why should the criminal law apply to you? It, does, it doesn't doesn't make any sense, but uh, and doesn't seem very fair to me. But but I think I think that the, the Bulger case was the classic case that shows you why the system works the way it is. Because the emotional reaction of most people is that they did a, a very bad thing and they must be punished for it, however old they are or however young they are. My view would be: What's the best thing for society in the end to come out of that case? And the best thing for society would have been to find a way for those children to somehow be taken through the rest of their childhood into an adulthood where they were law-abiding citizens. By by prosecuting them in the way that happened, and then they have to have a new identity for life and everything else. What you what we did was guarantee that almost certainly that wouldn't happen. That you wouldn't end up with two children who had done this awful thing, and that no, no one's arguing against that. But ultimately, you know, ten year olds do all sorts of silly things. Now that's a particularly extreme piece of behaviour, I accept. But ten year olds are not any remotely developed enough to know the real in, in, the consequences of what they do, to understand the sort of the depth of of of, of, of sort of how bad an action might be, the impact on others, that kind of thing. They don't have any of those kind of – there is a scientific school of thought that, particularly for, for males, that, you, that that kind of maturity and insight doesn't develop until the mid-20s, if at all. But but, but certainly at the age of 10, two, 10-year-old boys don't have maturity. They don't have insight. They don't have judgment. So to convict them as if they had all of those things – and to then criminalise them well into adulthood, I think was a, was a mistake. And I think it, it, it's cost millions to keep them in custody, to keep changing identities, all the other stuff. That would have been much better spent sending them to a secure school. Of course, they shouldn't have been allowed. They couldn't have been allowed back on the streets in the same way that um, that, that other children are, because there was a risk. And, and, and children who behave like that would represent a risk. But for me, you would send them to a school that, that was a secure school environment where the only focus was on how to make sure that nothing like that ever happened again, um, not punishing them and sending them to prison. And, and I mean, the last chapter of my book is about, the, the, you know, what I view as being a flaw in our analysis, which is that we separate people into good and evil. So in that case, a classic example, they're evil. So it doesn't matter what happens to them, throw away, throw away the key, lock them up. And good people, you, you know, get to choose, essentially get to dictate the punishment of the bad people. I, I, I don't think I, my kind of considered view after spending many years with so-called bad people and, you know, hopefully some of my time with so-called good people is that I think everyone's got a bit of both. And I just think that the proportion changes as life develops. Some people become more badly behaved as they get older. Others just, you know, bad behavior kind of stops happening as they get into their teens or even beyond. So I, I, for me, I think you focus not on trying to characterize people as being evil or good, but look at what's happened and how you can stop it happening again. And that's all that matters to me. And that's why I don't find these labels, you know, these press labels about evil, you know, people and, 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 and the need, you know, calls for the death penalty to come back as a form of punishment. All of that, I get it. I know why it happens and there's nothing new about it. And, and it's the reason why the Americans have two and a half million in prison, prison, because that's how people think in America about stuff. But it doesn't actually reduce crime. And for me, the, the most important thing about criminal justice should be at the end of the year, have we got fewer criminals and fewer victims than we had the year before? And at the moment, we don't think about that at all. more crime more people in prison and and the cost of the whole system goes up and up and no one ever says can we reduce any of these things with something that we do by doing something different 
Uh, you're incredibly logical and the, you know you're thinking, which is really refreshing. I was just, I was just, well, I'm going to talk about evil. Then, do you do you believe in evil? Have you met no, someone don't. that you thought outrightly just they are pure and utter evil? No, I don't, and I'll tell you why I don't believe that because I have met people, serial killers, and I've met people who are serial child rapists and child abusers, and I've met people who have committed you know all manner of the worst crimes of violence stabbing people 60 times you know uh, all, all you know these these I've represented people for all these sorts of crimes and and I would say that the you know it's very interesting that there that, that those who who commit them particularly at younger ages I have absolutely no doubt it's as a result of um psychological and and, and mental phenomena going on in their head which they have not chosen or controlled so, so you know, it's well known, for example, that those who suffer traumatic head injury as a child are much more likely to be violent in later life. Not their fault they suffered the traumatic head injury as a child. Of course, we're all under an obligation to control ourselves, um, you know, whether we've got these instincts or we haven't, and whether they're caused by psychological elements or, or even physical brain damage, that kind of thing. But, but my take on the crimes and the criminals that, that are responsible for those crimes that I've come across over the years is that there hasn't been that form of sort of deliberate and conscious decision-making to become violent and do these terrible crimes, that, that there's something within them which has either been caused by damage to them as a child, whether it be psychological trauma or physical trauma, or which is just genetic and inherited in their in their in their way of thinking and and, and and doing things, which is ultimately responsible rather than some nefarious or, or, or nebulous concept of, of evil, whatever that means. Um, I think deeds can be evil. I think actions can be evil. I just don't think it's helpful or useful to analyze people as being evil. Because ultimately everyone is born the same. Everyone's born equal. And the journey that people take after they're born is very different between one person and another. Um, and, 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 and generally speaking, the behavior that I've seen amongst the more serious criminals I've represented and those who are the most violent, I believe wasn't made, wasn't done as a result of completely free choice to behave that way deliberately without any other explanatory kind of factor in their background. Um, so, so the short answer is no, I don't really believe in evil. I don't necessarily, I mean, again, good people and behaving well, you, you, everyone's the product of everything that's ever happened to them. And, you know, if you're lucky enough to have had, as I did, parents who worked really hard, who were really kind of keen to support you as a child and kind of, um, you know, you had that kind of loving home environment and you didn't kind of, you weren't homeless, you weren't on the streets, your parents weren't drug users or criminals, you know, and you, and you grow up in a sort of stable environment, your chances in life are 20 times better of succeeding than, than those, for example, who go into the care system. Who, who, who have no choice. It's not their fault they went into the care system. And yet the chances of going to prison if you've been in care are 15 times higher than for the average person who's not been in care. Now, why is that? Because people in care are 15 times more violent or evil or dangerous or bad? No, of course not. It's because the system itself breeds in certain behavior patterns which, which unfortunately then are replicated uh, in, in, uh, in later life and continue often into later life. But it's because we traumatise young people that they end up, generally speaking, end up becoming uh, criminal and, and, and violent rather than because they choose to be because they're evil, is my view. No, I agree. It's very, it's very cyclical of abuse at a young age and I'm, I'm guessing statistically they're the ones that will go on to do it because that's, you know, that's what they're... Well, um, that's what they grew up knowing. What's acceptable? I think. I think the impact of what happens to young people. Um, m most people who are listening, and most people that you you and I know, weren't exposed to multiple childhood traumas. You know, in the way that those who, you know, when I was filming my uh, BBC show, we we filmed at a young offenders institution up in Scotland. Um, one of the largest ones in Scotland. And the governor told me that some of the, the young people, the, on average, the young people who were in, uh, who, who were in custody there, and it's just basically a prison for kids. Um, but they, but, but on average, they'd experienced two, um, sudden deaths due to some sort of traumatic circumstance, either homicide, drug, drug death, drug dose. On average, two for the whole of the inmates, but some five by the age of 16. They'd experienced five deaths actually personally in front of them through either a parent dying of an overdose wow. 
or 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 someone dying and being shot or stabbed in the street five times by the age of 16 and i just you know when 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 you think about that i mean i I make no judgment about your background but i doubt if that's the case for you it certainly wasn't the case for me by the age of 16 the idea of seeing a dead body full stop was kind of like a big kind of thing in your head but but to see all of that trauma as a child and then not to come out of it and be deeply affected and, and damaged by it, I think would be almost inconceivable. And and what happens, of course, is that those young people, many of them, sadly, are in the care system, experience all of that, will themselves start taking drugs at a young age, will start working for drug gangs or becoming involved in violence at a young age, and before long they're locked up in prison. And and And, and to me, that's not because they're evil people. It's you know it's so obvious that it's because of the trauma they suffered as uh, in their young lives. It's um, honestly, Chris, this is fascinating. I could go on all day, but I'm very cautious that you're a busy man and time. So I have three more questions, and then we're out. But they're a bit more lighthearted than uh, um, systemic issues in our criminal law. <laughs> um, so, firstly, um, I have a few. Uh, my dad's still around, but I have a few daddy issues. My dad left when I was young. Not that I was very much shattered with love by my mother. But when I get the chance to meet successful men, I seem to latch onto it because I crave that kind of uh, parental uh, advice that I can get and, you know, absorb. So if you're my father, you may well be. My mum got about a bit when she was younger. <laughs> you, know, you may well be, mate. Um, what would be the main bit of advice you'd give to me just for life? Not career or anything, just general just life advice. I, th- I think follow your passions is my is my kind of view of, of uh, I think many people spend a lot of their life pursuing either relationships or or jobs, careers, other things which which they feel obliged to or they're kind of almost they, they feel they have to to satisfy someone else. Or I, I think I think if you follow your passions, you won't go far wrong because you'll be a happier, more successful person. you're likely to, you know, earn more money because you're doing something you're passionate about. But even if you're not, you're likely to be more satisfied and more more kind of just at peace with the world if you are doing the stuff that you're really passionate about doing. I think when, I think for me, I was lucky enough to be able to do that. You know, I ended up developing this passion, as I said, as a 16, 17 year old at sixth form when I watched cases in court and thought, this is amazing. I've got to to do this thing and became very passionate about becoming a a defence barrister and a trial barrister in particular. Um, and I, and I was lucky enough to have, you know, parental support around that and, and, and everything else. And I, I saw sort of friends from school and other people that I know who kind of in jobs and careers that, they just are kind of doing because they they make an okay living or even a very good living that they just don't get any joy out of it. So I, th- I think every day and and certainly in the longer term, you know, my advice will be look for the things that and I do and I've got lots of kids, so I do give them this <laughs> advice. Um, so, you know, I and, and I and I always say to them, you know, do the thing. I've got a daughter who's coming up to GCSEs and looking what she wants to do next. And my you know thoughts are don't look at which subjects are going to get you the best job to do this, this, and this, basically look at the things that are really going to, you're going to enjoy learning about and that you think you're going to succeed at, pick those subjects, and then the rest will take care of itself. So follow your passions is the short answer to your question. I will get Which the adoption papers in the post, mate. <laughs> I'll get them over. <laughs> Thank you, mate. I think Thank you're you. on the right path. Thank you. It means a lot. We're trying to. We're trying to. I think it's, you know what, for me, mate, it's just meeting people. I love meeting people. And it's, I don't know how that, what that is, putting people together, networking. I just love that and learning. So I will take that on board. Um, one that I want to take on, uh, probably the, the main one I wanted to ask actually, just for me and my own personal selfish, um, use of your time is what would be your three top tips of persuasion? Cause my job is negotiating day in, day out. That's my, that's my day job. Um, whether that's trying to get the missus to, uh, you know, let me, let me go down the pub with my mates or, you know, it's a million pound lease extension. Um, oh, you can tell your missus, I told you to follow your passion. And if your passion is <laughs> The mate Chris said, all right, I've got to go. <laughs> I've got to go. <laughs> yeah, I'm really passionate about the pub. Um, uh, so, so, so top three tips um, uh, in terms of persuasion. Um, I think you, you, you remember that it doesn't, it's not about you. It's about the other person. So, so I think many people see persuasion or, or negotiation or arguing about, I've got this thing I want to say in the way that I want to say it. Okay. That, and, and if you think about it from a jury point of view, 
and I've seen this happen in, in criminal trials, you know, if a barrister starts to just be very sort of intellectual and wordy and, and kind of clever and kind of use all sorts of clever stuff, um, generally speaking, jurors will switch off. And, 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 and it's the same with any form of persuasion. If, if you use the la- language, body language, mannerism, everything, that might, it might be the way that you want to present things, but actually it doesn't appeal to the person you're trying to persuade, then you're re- that's, a, that's a really big mistake um i think i think i think i think you have to know and so tailor the way that you kind of enter a negotiation or a discussion to the person that you're addressing don't have the sort of ego and arrogance to think that you're the one that matters you, you don't matter in a, in a situation like that what matters is your impact on the other person it's not about you it's about the other person so think about what, what what's going to make them respond you know positively to your message so second thing on message is have a positive message to offer. So have something, you know, it's no, one of the things, I think the worst things that people can do, particularly in a discussion or an argument or presentation, is, is, is just to become overly analytical about the problem without kind of saying, okay, if we do it this way, we're going to end up here. So offering people a sort of a positive outcome, if it's a negotiation where you want more money out of something, well, then then find a way to kind of, kind of present it as part of a bigger picture that's got more benefits. So always find the positives and benefits um, for, for the other person rather than sort of arguing again from your own self point of view, I want this for me. Here's why it's good for you if we do it this way and, and, and offer those kind of kind of positives. Um, I think the third thing is, and this is, this applies undoubtedly to my job and I suspect to yours and many others, just know your stuff. Because if you're on top of the detail of, of, of a negotiation, of a situation, of the background, of, then you are so much more um, effective in terms of commanding attention, in terms of getting the confidence of the other person, but also persuading somebody with, with, with facts and detail. You know, if you're negotiating over a property, for example, if you don't know that the roof needs replacing or you don't know some key detail about the about there's something wrong with the lease, for example, and, you know, you actually don't own half the land. If you if you if you're on top of that level of detail in whatever your area of business is, then you're going to get a much better deal than if you don't know those things. Um, and, and, And I always want and from day one, I've always wanted to go into courtrooms knowing more about the case than anyone else. And, and I think if you go into a negotiation knowing more about all of the subject matter, the people involved in it. So do your research on the people. It's all part and parcel of the same point, really, is, you know, if you're negotiating with someone, find out who they are. Look, you know, nowadays it's not difficult. Um, find out as much as you can about them. I'm not saying you're going to come out with it necessarily, but have it in here so that when you when you're negotiating, you're negotiating when you're the one that has the most information because information is critical to persuasion. And, 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 you know, if, if you're accurate in your kind of analysis, based on all of the facts, you're more likely to be persuasive than if it all sounds a bit kind of airy-fairy and, you have, and, and it sounds like you're not really on top of it. And I've seen this happen in cases, you know, there's, there's no, almost nothing worse for a barrister during a closing speech saying to the jury and members of the jury, you'll remember this witness talking about, you know, it was, a, it was definitely not a red car, it was a blue car. And then... Uh, Ten minutes later, the jury go out, and the judge says, "Actually, you got the evidence wrong. It, they they did say it was a blue car. You, I think you, you, you know you didn't make your notes not right." And then you've got to stand up and say, "I'm really sorry. I got that detail wrong." So that that's that's exactly. It looks terrible, and it, and it, and it looks like you, you you don't know what you're talking about. The more you're on top of your brief, you're on top of whatever it is that you're negotiating about. The more likely you are gonna you're not gonna slip up. And if they come back at you with stuff, you're going to have the answer because you've done your research. Thank you, mate. Um, yeah. Working for you? Board. Yeah, mate, it's really great, mate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and lastly, my favourite question, it's bloody weird, mate. I started doing it in the last season, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What okay. is your favourite bag of crisps? It says a lot about someone, I find. favourite bag of crisps? That's yeah, you're in the soup. You're in the local oh, shop. You're hungry. This is a very good question um, because... There are two answers, and I'm going to give you two crisps that are my favourite crisps. Go on. Because, because I think if it's a, I'm on the motorway, I've got to eat something, and I kind of, like, I can't be bothered messing around. I just want something I can eat in the car. I would go with McCoy's salt and vinegar. Oh, great crisp. It's a great, great crisp, crisp, that. 
But I have to say, if I'm sitting around with a with at home with a drink and I want a crisp to kind of just start my evening off with a bit of salt or something like that, there are some very posh crisps. I think they cost about four pound or five pound for a big bag, but they're basically made with with Himalayan salt, and I can't even remember the brand name. But 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 they're very very thin, but really crispy, and so you kind of get like an amazing crunch without a huge thickness. So um, I, I I can't remember the name of them, but um but but yeah, they they they're the ones for a very different situation. But I, I am a bit of a crisp theme, so I do like a tortilla chip with a bit of guacamole to to dip it in if that counts as a crisp. Yeah, that um, does count. Of course, I like a poppadom. You know, let's be honest, oh. with a kind of tiger and all the. What's your, what's your curry? Oh, curry. Um, well, I do like a, I like a butter chicken. Nice. Uh, I, 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 I don't. I generally don't go for the the most spicy stuff, but I like a butter chicken. I love a bit of dal, a bit of black dal with some um, with some really good. Nice. Marble. So there's an, so 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 talking about that, my favourite. So there's, a, there's, there's some really good places in London, but there's a place in Mumbai, an, an Indian restaurant in a hotel in Mumbai, where they have a guy who has a big tandoor on wheels that goes round the restaurant. So the, the big Indian oven, you know, like fired up really, really hot, but it's on wheels and he has a little tr- tray of dough and he makes the, the pop of the, not the pop the chapatis and the naan breads and everything there in front of you, sticks it in the oven and it comes out still bubbling like hot and bubbling and amazing. And you get that. It's just part of the thing. And if you want more, you just put your hand up and he brings you more of this amazing sort of fresh spread. So, um, so anyway, um, but I, I think a poppadon just about counts as a crisp. Not yeah, really it's, te- it's kind of crisp. It's crisper, isn't it? So it's the same. It's a, it's, it's a crisp. We'll go have a crisp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like got- you've had McCoy's have been a very popular answer. I must McCoy's have been like really cool. what, what flavor are people going for? Uh, we've had flame grilled steak. We've had the salt and vinegar. Um, I am a McCoy sweet chili chicken. Um, mm. it's the, I'm a crunch man. I'm very much texture. My, I think my yeah. palate is texture first, and it works its way down to yeah. No, I mean, a ruffle. Like if I'm in, if I if I'm in another country, ruffles. Oh, uh, I was having. I was literally only eating ruffles on Sunday in Athens. So I've just yeah, ruffles. Athens or, or and, uh, lays don't mm. do all over the place, and they do a ruffle one. Uh, a ruffly one, but yeah, ruffles are good. I do, I do like going when you go to like Spain or, or or another country. I do like going to the supermarket and and exploring the crisps because they often have like a local one that's really nice and very crispy. That's just that that's that's you know that's costs less than the branded ones, but is actually the best in a see through pack. Do you think and they got a nice array of flavors as well? The flavors are always very different. Yeah. What we no, have, no, I'm yeah. not a see, see, salt and vinegar is out on the edge for me. I'd say nine nine times out of ten, I'd just go for a salted. So your your sweet chili chicken is kind of it's almost like you're trying to make a real meal out of crisps. And and and, and I, I hate to bring it to you, but crisps <laughs> are not an actual meal. I like I like the shop assistants to think I'm exotic. You know that's what it is. <laughs> like a, we had a, one guy who said, "Oh, we're going to have a cargo if that's what you go." <laughs> well, I don't think you'll ever get asked that on the podcast again, mate. So there you go. <laughs> That's the it's important question. And it's made, made me reveal my addiction, my lifelong addiction to crisps. Well, now it's getting for Christmas now, mate. So, <laughs> yeah, like, right. I've already got one. Anyway. Um, right, but, mate, you have been honestly a wonderful, wonderful guest. I've thoroughly enjoyed this. I will put links to your book um, in the details. So hopefully something comes with it. Um, and I hope it's been good for you just to ramble on to some poor little Essex lads. I've enjoyed the chat. Keep in touch. And if you want um, if you want a signed copy of the book sending through, just uh, drop me an email with the address and stuff. And, I will uh, do, mate. I will definitely take you up on that. Um, yeah, mate, honestly, thank you so much, Chris. Honestly, you're a top man and I really appreciate it.